Would you turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5? And while you're turning there, I want to remind you, last week we went through uh, the second half of Ephesians chapter 4, and we considered what a gospel-shaped life looks like, what a gospel-shaped life looks like. And as we considered that, I started out by asking a question at the beginning of the sermon, saying, what does it mean to become a Christian? What does it mean to become a Christian? And so this isn't really a part two sermon or anything like that, but it really is a continuation of where we went um, from where we started there. What does it mean to become a Christian? Then spending our time together considering what does it mean to have a gospel-shaped life? To become a Christian is to respond to the good news of the gospel, that Jesus came to die and save sinners and rise, satisfying the wrath of God on our behalf, that if we would trust in him and turn from our sin, we could be saved. That's the good news of the gospel. And so a gospel-shaped life is the life that flows out of that. And so this morning, I want to ask another question, which is maybe equally difficult, maybe even more difficult to answer. What does it mean to walk as a Christian? Not just what does it mean to become a Christian, what does it mean to walk as a Christian? Now the answer we find right away in Ephesians chapter 5 in the first two verses. Paul starts with therefore, coming out of this, again, gospel-shaped new life that we have in Christ. He says, therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. A fragrant, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. That's really our answer. What, what does it mean to walk as a Christian? It means to imitate God. It means to walk in love. But if I'm honest with you, I think this is the most challenging statement in the whole book of Ephesians. To imitate God. What does that mean? To walk in love. What does that really look like? And so it's not inherently challenging in the words. It's not a, a cryptic passage in the, that kind of a sense that we really need to dig for the, the, the tough wrestling kind of meaning. But it's tough in application. How do we actually make this a part of our life? Now, this isn't new material. We've run into this multiple times already through the book of Ephesians. Even recently, two sermons ago, we talked about what it means to grow up in every way into Christ. And then last week, we talked about how the saints in Ephesus, and for us, how we learned Christ. And then that affects this gospel-shaped life. Because we learned the gospel, because we learned Christ, that changes our lives. And this morning, we run into the same theme, but just with such a bold statement. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us. What did you want to be when you grew up? Or if you're a kid, what do you want to be when you grow up? I was one of those kids that every week I had a new thing I wanted to do. Every career I saw, every possible idea, I just wanted to do it. You know, professional wrestler, yeah. You know, astronaut, yeah. You know, like the coolest job. Anytime I saw anything, I was like, I want to do that. But even the less exciting jobs are things that I really wanted to do. Anything I saw, I was like, I'm going to be that guy. I'm very obsessive with these kinds of things. 
But I remember for a good portion of my life, I wanted to be a sheet metal worker. And you may say, what? what? I apologize for any sheet metal workers here. I'm not trying to downplay it, comparing it to astronauts or professional wrestlers. But I wanted to be a sheet metal worker, which is what my dad did. And that's why I wanted to be a sheet metal worker, because my dad is a sheet metal worker. I remember telling my teacher one time in school when she asked me, Aaron, what do you want to do when you grow up? I said, I'm going to be a sheet metal worker. She said, what's a sheet metal worker? I said, I have no idea. But my dad's one, and that's what I want to, I want to be like my dad. I eventually later became a sheet metal worker for six months out of college. Turns out I did not want to be a sheet metal worker, but I wanted to be like my dad. And maybe you're here and you never had a, a father to look up to in this way. Because I wanted to be like my dad, not because he's necessarily a sheet metal worker. I wanted to be like my dad because he's a godly man, because he's a hard worker. He loves just with this open heart of generosity. That's why I wanted to be like my dad. But again, maybe you're here and you never had that picture of, of a father. As Christians, though, we do have a heavenly father who calls us his children. At the very beginning of this letter, Paul starts out, he says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. And so we have a heavenly father. And so as Christians, as we think about imitating God, it's a similar idea of wanting to be like our dad, wanting to be like our heavenly father. And so this call, this command that we find at the beginning of Ephesians chapter 5 is challenging, but it makes sense. If we are Christ followers, if we're Christians, we are to imitate God and to walk in love. And so our big idea is pretty clear this morning. God calls us to walk in love. God calls us to walk in love. Now I say it's clear, just like last week's big idea was clear, that God calls us to live a gospel-shaped life. It's clear. It's simple, but it's not easy. And so I wonder how many of us are in a similar situation this morning, thinking of that statement. God calls us to walk in love, and we feel like we're standing in front of our teacher who just asked us, well, what's, what's a sheet metal worker? Well, I don't know, but it sounds good. And I wonder if even us uh, who have been Christians for a long time bump into these statements about imitating God, walking in love, and we don't really know what it looks like. If we're honest, it sounds a little bit strange. And if we're really honest, it sounds really hard. But Paul, the Apostle Paul, who wrote this letter to the Ephesians 2,000 years ago, gives us three principles, I think, through this passage to imitate God and walk in love. He's going to talk about walking in love by walking in light, walking in love by walking in wisdom, and walking in love by walking in the Spirit. There is a lot in this passage this morning, but I hope we come away with a clearer idea of what it means to imitate God and to walk in love. Ephesians 5. 
Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness or foolish talk nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them, for it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Look carefully, then, how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of your time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. But be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So let's start by considering this metaphor that we see prominent in the middle of the passage about walking in light. Walk in love by walking in light. It's a really powerful statement when he says, at one time you were darkness, but now you are light. It's not even that you are walking in the light. You are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. That is a profound statement. And it's because we are found in Christ that we can walk in light, that we are able to be light in the Lord because of Christ. We've considered this, again, from Ephesians chapter 1. All you have to do is look through each and every verse, and you see that it is always in Christ that all of our blessings and all these things happen. Blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. In him we have redemption through his blood. You get the idea. Because we are in Christ, this statement can make sense. Even coming as sinful people, this statement can be true. That we can be in Christ and we can be light in the Lord. As Jesus is described in John chapter 1, it says, In him was life, 
and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And so Jesus is light. And so we are to walk in light. This is the picture we saw of the gospel-shaped life. It's a renewed life. A renewed life because this is the way we learned Christ. Who is light? And then Paul spends the majority of the time in this passage thinking about the opposite. What does this darkness look like that we should have nothing to do with? Starts in verse 3. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. The word here for sexual immorality is pornea. You can figure out probably where we get some English words from that word. But this is a broad, sweeping phrase. This is a, a broad word. It's not just one thing. Maybe you're thinking, oh, maybe that's not me. This is all the way from lustful thoughts all the way to the most heinous, unmentionable, unmentionable thing. This is what we see from this word. It's a, it's a broad word about immorality. Then it gets even broader, and he goes into all impurity. And then he talks about coveting. Each one of these things has the same thing in common. Each one of these is idolatry. Idolatry. It's putting something else ahead of God in our lives. And it makes sense, this light and darkness metaphor, that when things are light, when the lights are on, you find your way by seeing things. Right? When you can see with your eyes, that's how you get around. But when you're in the darkness, you're left to only feel. You're left to feel your way through the darkness. And you look at this list of sins, and that's really what it is. It's all about feeling your way through the darkness. If it feels good, do it. If it looks good, take it. If it's not yours, desire it. And so a life shadowed in darkness has no choice but to feel its way through life. And I wonder if you remember that. If you're a Christian here this morning and you remember what it was like before Christ, if this sounds familiar to you, kind of feeling your way through life. And it gets worse, though. You know how in your home, when the lights are all off, and uh, maybe your childhood home or maybe your current home, if you've lived there for long enough, you can navigate through your house pretty well through the darkness. You know where not to stub your toe or bang your shin or step on that kid's toy that makes a lot of noise in the middle of the night. You can navigate through your house, which is fine in the context of your home. But what about when our lives just become darkened even more and more with sin and we become more and more comfortable navigating our way through this home of sin. This is why I think a chapter earlier when Paul describes this darkened life, he describes it in two parts. So one part, ignorance, and the other part, giving yourself up. There is a level of ignorance. When you're in the dark, you need to just feel your way out. But there is a level of becoming more and more comfortable with the dark where we get comfortable, we get complacent with it. And that's fine if we're talking about navigating through the darkness of your home. But that's not fine when we're talking about navigating through the darkness of your heart in sin. And so this morning, I think it's worth taking a second to consider how we feel about this idea of light and darkness. Are we more familiar 
with the light or the dark. We all sin. But when we sin, are we grieved by this sin? Or is this immorality, impurity, and covetousness, is this something that you're freely navigating in the darkness of your own heart and becoming more and more comfortable and familiar with? Paul goes on in verse 4, he says, Let there be no filthiness or foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. Gives another list of what we do with our words. Considered this last week as well. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. If you remember this word corrupting that we looked at last week, it's talking about filthy putrid, rotten speech. And we see this again. Let there be no filthiness or foolish talk nor crude joking, which are out of place. Could steal Paul's words again, what he said last week. This is not how you learned Christ. But how sad it is when we make these things normal and okay to use this kind of language or joking. Since when did this become a part of our vocabulary? It's even worse, uh, you know, when this infects you know, we put on a facade of having it all together, but in our, the, the quietness of our homes and our hearts, our language doesn't reflect our identity in Christ. We even see it infect the church. I was with somebody here, and we were looking at a sermon from another church, uh, which was confident is not preaching the gospel. And we were just looking through, okay, what are they preaching? And all of a sudden, expletive central. And I'm not even talking about, like, fringy, like, you know, we're a homeschool family, like there's some more, you know what I'm talking about. No, I mean like, not okay for anybody to be using. Filthy talk in the middle of this so-called sermon. Since when is that okay? But this is when Paul contrasts light and darkness. Light and darkness. He's very clear about what these sins are. About what these things are that we let affect and infect our lives. And then there's some troubling words that come in verses 5 and 6. In verses 5 he says, For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, or who is covetous, that is an idolater, again, capturing all of that, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. So it's a troubling verse. It's a hard verse to read. It's a hard verse to think about. But this is what he's saying. This is what is true for those that are not in the light. This is not how you learned Christ. There's no inheritance. We've bumped into this word a couple times, inheritance, through this letter to the Ephesians. It talks about how we are, again, adopted sons and daughters of God. Then a few verses later, he says, In him, in Christ, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Then a few verses level, he says, Having the hearts of your eyes enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his the glorious inheritance in the saints. So this inheritance language is what we've seen already as Paul's describing salvation, about being saved. This is, this is part of it. We have this inheritance, a heritage of grace. But if, if we're really living in darkness, and we're letting these sins rule our lives. Paul isn't pulling punches when he says, this is not your inheritance. 
next verse says, Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Again, troubling words, a bold statement. We don't like to talk about wrath. We don't like to talk about punishment. But we need to come to the place where we acknowledge the fact that our sin demands punishment. We've rebelled against God. And so because of that, God is just. And so we need to be careful that we don't listen to those around us that say, this sin is okay. That we don't listen to our own hearts when we say, this sin is okay. Let no one deceive you with empty words. We need to be careful and we need to not be those people that say, oh, you know what, you just, you do you. You know, I'm doing it over here. I think this is how I'm reading this extremely clear command, but you can do your own thing. That's not a loving thing to do at all. Right? And so we don't need to be hitting people over the head and, you know, fire and brimstone them. But we need to be aware of what sin is and the consequences of sin. We're not helping ourselves or others if we're not willing to talk about sin for what it really is. We need to stop excusing sin. Again, it's the most unloving thing we could do for others. And this is why Paul talks about, about therefore, do not become partners with them. These people who are motivating you or encouraging you or deceiving you with these empty words that this darkness is okay. It's not saying, you know what, set up a little commune and never associate with the world. That's a very different picture than what we see the New Testament saying. But we also need to be careful. You know, who are we letting influence us? What are we hearing? What are the messages that we're opening ourselves up to? We need to be careful. I remember my mom always telling me as a kid, show me your friends and I'll tell you your future. I don't know if that makes sense for this, but I think there's, there's a connection there. That we need to be careful about what voices we're letting creep in. Because you know, when we look at this list of things, you can hear that voice of the, the people in your life, or you can hear that voice from society saying, it's okay, it's 2021. But we need to be careful. We need to walk in the light. And Paul gives a big contrast here. He says, instead of you know, having this darkness and light, he says, expose these things. Expose the darkness. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness. This is verse 11. But instead expose them, for it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. And so I encourage you here this morning, if you're hearing these words and it's feeling heavy and you're thinking, man, I'm in a bad place. I am so familiar navigating through this dark house that I live in. I can hop, skip, and jump. I can make it look like I've got things together, but I'm, I'm happily living in darkness. Bring that sin out of the dark. Bring it into the light. Talk about sin for what it really is. We don't have to be ashamed of talking about sin. Because we know our sin has been dealt with. Confess and walk in light. This is why Paul quotes from uh, this kind of poetic piece in the middle. Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. This is, a, a scholars say, it kind of pulled together from a couple different Old Testament sources. And, and what most agree that this is the equivalent of like a first century hymn. Something that they would have been familiar with and would have sang or, 
or exhorted each other with. Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. This is what Paul's saying. Wake up. And Christ's light will shine on you. Jesus died to bring us into the light, and so stop living in darkness. What we desperately need is a changed heart. We can't come face to face with this issue of sin and this list and saying, oh man, I'm failing here, I'm failing here. Oh boy, now we're talking about not having an inheritance and the wrath of God. If you try to just change your behavior with fear of consequences, that's not the solution. We need to pray and ask God for a changed heart, a renewed heart. This gospel-shaped life, as we considered last week, is a renewed life because that's the way we learned Christ. It's a holy life because God is holy It's a forgiven life because Christ has forgiven us. The only way that we can change is through God's work in us. And so if you're carrying that burden of sin here this morning, let it go. Give it to God. Bring it out into the light. And for lack of better words, wake up. Because Christ's light can shine on you. That's good news. Maybe you're here this morning, you've never responded to the gospel, or maybe you think you have. Maybe you even grew up in the church. But if you're carrying this weight of sin, there's nothing you can do about that sin. You can't work it away. You can't behave good enough. But Christ paid for it. God, in his mercy, sent his son to pay the penalty for sin. To be forsaken so that you didn't have to be. To take the punishment of sin so that you could be seen as righteous, Christ's righteousness. This is good news. And if you're here this morning and you're a Christian, but there's that sin that nobody knows about. You're living in darkness. Confess it to God. Bring it out into the light. The good news is that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So wake up. Come into the light, and Christ's light will shine on you. This is the good news of the gospel. This is why, if it wasn't for that, it would be a lot of doom and gloom. The news would be really bad. And what I'd be talking about, this uh, lack of inheritance, the, the darkness and depravity of our hearts, the wrath of God, this would be troubling if it wasn't for the good news of Jesus Christ. And so come into the light. This is what we need, a renewed heart. And God can only renew our hearts. We can't do it on our own volition. Paul gives us some other exhortations in this. You see at the end of verse 4, he says, Instead, instead of this filthiness, this foolish talk, this crude joking, he says, let there be thanksgiving. Being thankful is a way to battle greed and idolatry. We need to be thankful, and we can be thankful when we consider the good news of the gospel, that it can transform and change our hearts. And so we can be thankful because we're forgiven. This can be your inheritance. You can walk in the light. And so we need to collectively, whether you never have before or whether you are a Christian, we need to collectively walk with Christ. We need to move in this direction. We need to wake up to the good news of the gospel and let the gospel affect our hearts. We can trust in Christ alone and his righteousness. And so we need to learn to walk in love by walking in the light. 
Our next point, our next principle as we consider how to walk in love is walking in love by walking in wisdom. Walking in wisdom. Verse 15, look carefully how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. Making the best use of your time because the days are evil. Make the best use of your time. Seems like kind of a funny, you know, step out here as we're talking about wisdom. What, what are we talking about? Is this just productivity hacks? Is that our, you know, goal for wisdom? But it's not just productivity. But it's also not less than that. As we think about how easy it is to slip into this darkness, knowing our own character, knowing who we are, and how easily we slip into this darkness, we can't get passive or complacent. Because before you know it, you're walking down roads that you have no business being on. So when he's saying, make the best use of your time, he's saying, don't waste your life. Christ died so that we could be in the light. And so we need to walk in wisdom. The days are evil. Our hearts are fickle. And so to walk in love as Christ loved us is not to walk in cruise control. It's not to walk in cruise control. But Paul says we can walk in wisdom a few different ways. Twice in the passage he talks about discerning the will of God. Verse 10 he says, And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. And in verse 17, therefore, do not be foolish. The opposite of wisdom. Do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. You might be saying, right on, Aaron. That sounds good. That sounds like a good solution to foolishness. But what is God's will? What's God's will for my life? Well, if you're wondering what God's will is for your life, we can backtrack up to our kind of thesis statement. Verses 1 and 2. Therefore, be imitators of God. As beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. Let's start there. That's a good place to start. Let's imitate God. We need to walk in love. And how do we understand God's will? Well, he's given us his word. Read his word. Follow his word. We may be waiting around for a word from the Lord, but he's given us his word. Let's read it. Let's know him. Let's know God. As we walk in love by walking in light, what Christ has done for us, we walk in love by walking in wisdom, making the best use of our time, understanding the will of the Lord, and we walk in love by walking in the Spirit. Walking in the Spirit. Feels like a bit of a diversion as we're going through. We're talking about light. We're talking about wisdom. And then all of a sudden in verse 18, Paul's like, and don't drink or don't get drunk. It feels like, whoa, where did that come from? Bit of a detour. But it's interesting that Paul contrasts this influence, this use of alcohol, and being under the influence of it, and then being under the influence of the Spirit. And I'm not just being cheeky with this. He talks about... Don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. To be drunk is to inhibit judgment, to inhibit sound thinking. But life in the Spirit gives contentment and clarity. Think about every way that alcohol and drunkenness is a vice for people. People are searching for happiness, peace, pleasure, and the escape is alcohol. 
But the fruit of the Spirit is all of these things that they're searching for in spades. Think of the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Alcohol is chasing these things, yet accomplishing the opposite. And as much as it seems like kind of a funny contrast, why that? Why is it like this practical thing? Don't get drunk with wine. That's a fact. That's like, okay. But then also be filled with the Spirit. Because these things are so opposite. Just like this filthy talk and thanksgiving being contrasted earlier. Just like we looked at all through chapter 4, that there's, you know, don't steal but work hard. There's a, a negative and a positive. And so what does this spirit-filled life look like? Because again, all of a sudden we dip out, we're talking about drunkenness for a second, and then boop, we're back out here, and now we're talking about life in the spirit. I think it's helpful as we consider what it means to imitate God, to walk in love, and to consider what it means to walk in love by walking in the spirit. Be filled with the spirit. This is really overall captured as a life of worship. It's the opposite life of what we saw this life of darkness is. To be in darkness is to be idolatrous. To be poisoned in a sense. But life in the spirit is something totally different. It goes through four exhortations. And, and these are all things we could talk about for a long time. But just to cruise through them quick. Four things about what a spirit-filled life looks like. What does it mean to walk in the spirit? Well, one, he says, worship God. A spirit-filled life worships God. He says, sing to God, make a melody in your heart. As we sing, we worship God with our heart and with our voice. Now, we know that's a big part of our services. We come together and we sing and we worship. Again, this is, this is finally oriented properly, uh, the worship in our lives. Again, we look at immorality and impurity and being covetous. He said, these are idols. We're worshiping the wrong thing. We have a worship problem fundamentally. We are to worship God. That's what happens when we're, we're in the light, when we have a, a spirit-filled life. As we sing and make melody to the Lord with our heart, we worship God. Now, I think that's how most of us, if you're anything like me, that's how we think about our time when we sing together, when we worship. And we, we know that our lives of worship are more than just what happens on a Sunday morning. But what else is happening when we're singing together? Why do we sing? I think it's helpful. Paul says this. He says, addressing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Addressing one another. Now, what's that all about? Is what we do together, is it just between you and God? Is it just staring at a screen? Is it just watching Josiah? We address one another as we sing. The corporate nature of our worship matters. This is how we walk in the spirit in this way. We address one another with singing. And so our corporate singing is not less than singing to God, but it's also more than that. As Josiah led us in our call to worship this morning, we say, it's corporate. Come, let us sing. We're addressing one another. We are not worshiping one another, but our singing is corporate. That's why it matters when we gather and we, we can hear each other sing. There's a corporate nature to this that matters, that adds a weightiness to it. 
the lyrics are hard in that song we sang before. Not hard because there's lots of them, but hard because they're profound. One of them was, perish every fond ambition, all I've sought or hoped or known. Yet how rich is my condition. God in heaven, I still my own. It's a powerful line and a powerful line to you to, for you to sing. But to address one another, it has a weightiness when you think about, you know, that person who's really generous or that person who maybe gave up a promotion at work so that they could serve the Lord more effectively. When you watch them and hear them sing, perish every fond ambition, all I've sought, hoped, or known, yet how rich is my condition, God in heaven, I still my own. There's a, there's a weightiness there. Or another line we sang, storms may howl and clouds may gather, all must work for good to me. That's good. We should be thinking that. We should be thinking of Romans 8 and thinking that God is working all things for his glory and our good. But again, what a weightiness there is to look across the room at someone who you know is going through a storm of life or has been through a storm of life. And yet they say storms may howl and clouds may gather, but all must work for good to me. This is going to make me sound like an old man and I'm okay with it. There's a reason why the lights are on in here. There's a reason why the music is not so loud that we can't hear each other, even if we decide to sing quietly. The lights are on so that we can see each other. It's not weird. It shouldn't be weird for us to look at each other while we're singing. We're addressing one another with these songs. We're lifting each other up. We're not worshiping each other, but we're worshiping God corporately. And we need to be able to hear each other. Again, there is something so much more beautiful than if we had, man, Josiah's really talented, but if we had the like best, whoever your favorite band in the world is, if they were offered to come lead worship here, that would be far less beautiful than 70 voices that are wildly in different keys, playing in the key of jazz. You know, if we were all just giving her, that is the most beautiful thing because we need to address one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. And through that, we make melody to the Lord with our heart. This is what it means to walk in the Spirit. He also says, giving thanks always and for everything. A life of thanksgiving kills pride and greed. And so bless God for all that is good. It's not over-spiritualizing things to be thankful for things, even the simple things in life. And true thanksgiving is more than just saying thank you. True thanksgiving is evidenced by giving up on the opposite things of thanksgiving, giving up complaining, giving up coveting, giving up comparing. Give thanks always and for everything. This is how we walk in the spirit. And then finally, the last phrase attached, which does serve as a transitional statement, which we'll be talking about, Lord willing, uh, two weeks from now when we get back to Ephesians. It says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. This is how we walk in the spirit. Paul's already described at the beginning of chapter four how a Christian is to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which they've been called. And that's characterized by humility, by gentleness and patience and bearing with one another in love because we mutually submit to christ we can and must submit to one another our culture has absolutely distorted this word submission 
Our sinful hearts absolutely distort this word submission. God has designed relationships to function with order. And this word for submitting is a military term. It talks about arranging under. And so to say submit to one another out of reverence for Christ doesn't just mean uniformity. It doesn't just mean uh, exclusive. You know, all Christians must submit to all Christians at all times. God has created order. But this call to submission is really an outworking of walking in the spirit. Even those in leadership positions can submit themselves to this role. They are to humbly serve those that they lead and those with authority over them are to humbly submit to those that God has placed over them. Verse 21, all on its own, is an outworking of how this all works. We'll see this over the next three sermons through Ephesians, Lord willing. But what Paul is concerned with here is the motive. That if we are to walk in the Spirit, if we are to walk in the Spirit, our lives should be characterized by this humility, gentleness, peace, and love. We are to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And I love even the examples. We, Paul has already spent time talking about the Jews and Gentiles, that the dividing wall of hostility has been broken down because of what Christ has done. But all, th- all through the Bible, we see these amazing examples of these walls being broken down. How submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ can happen. This, this week, someone drew, brought to my attention, just the picture uh, reminded me again of Jesus' own disciples. You have Simon the Zealot and Matthew the tax collector. You couldn't find two more opposed people politically they could live peaceably with one another out of reverence for Christ. Of course, their positions changed on what they did. They followed Christ now. But still, there's a lot smaller things that we let stand in our way from submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Humble, gentle, patient, bearing with one another. And so we submit out of this humble love for one another and humble love for Christ. And so Paul gives us a tough challenge at the beginning of this passage. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. That is the perfect model of walking in love. As we consider, what does it mean to walk in love? That's the model we have. That's the example we have. That we would give up our lives to serve other people. Again, we'll see soon, the example that Paul gives to husbands to to love their wives is to love them as Christ loved the church, as he gave himself up for her. That's the perfect example we have of how to walk in love. Our Our model for walking in love is Jesus. But we get this so wrong and we distort it. This picture of the gospel by letting sin rule in our life, by choosing willingly to live in this life of darkness. And when we let sin rule, we fall prey to letting these broken relationships distort our picture of what submission is, makes it impossible. When we let sin rule, we convince ourselves and we let others convince us that we should stay in the darkness. We need to walk in wisdom. We need to imitate God. We need to follow his will. We need to seek his will in his word. And we need to obey his word when we see it clearly presented to us. 
And we need to walk in the Spirit. God has graciously given us His Spirit. And so let Him work in and through you to worship God, to encourage one another, to be thankful always in everything, and to submit to one another out of humble love and reverence for Christ. What Jesus accomplished on the cross has made a way for us to be in the light with all that is good and right and true. He died to win you and to make it possible to be in the light. Somewhere that you could never get on your own. And so this is a wake-up call. This is a wake-up call. But not a wake-up call to simply get your act together. It's a wake-up call to let Christ's light shine on you. It's a call to look to him who gives the perfect picture of what walking in love looks like. He walked all the way to the cross for you. Jesus' death is more than a metaphor. He died to set you free from darkness. He walked willingly to the cross so that the inheritance that only he deserved could be yours. He walked with authority out of that grave so that the just wrath of God could be satisfied. And he walked in love so that you too could walk in love, not for your glory, but for God's glory alone. Let's pray. Father, we desperately need your help as we consider what it means to imitate you, to be holy because you are holy, to be set apart because you are perfectly set apart. But God, you know our sinful hearts more than we know our sinful hearts. But in your mercy, you saw us in the darkness and brought us into light. We thank you for the gift of your son that makes this possible for the gift of your son that even lets us be able to approach your throne and speak to you father if there's anyone here who does not know you or needs to seriously consider what it means to come out of the darkness lord would you work in their hearts to come to you their father to turn from sin and to trust in you Father, help us to walk in love as Christ loved us. Help us to walk in light as he's made it possible. Help us to walk in wisdom. You've told us in your word to ask for wisdom. We ask for wisdom. And help us to walk in the spirit, Lord. Empower us for whatever you would have for us. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.